There's a need for a little bit of a recap as we look today at understanding the times. Understanding the times, we're looking at the whole of chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. But I want to take you back to chapter 5. Chapter 5 gave us a look at events in the very last hours of the Babylonian Empire's empire when King Belshazzar was having a party, a big boozy party, and he was toasting his idols, his pagan gods, with the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem by his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar. You may recall that Belshazzar saw fingers appear, and those fingers wrote a message on the wall. Daniel, who by that time was old, and it would seem he was in retirement, and he was unknown to Belshazzar, he was called for at the suggestion of the Queen. The Queen came into the party, she found out what had been going on with the message, she saw the King, King Belshazzar, deeply distressed, and his knees were knocking, and uh, it was in a terrible way, and she suggested that he call for Daniel. And Daniel read and interpreted the message on the wall. It was God's judgment on Babylon. That same night, Darius the Median conquered the Babylonians and Belshazzar was slain. He was put to death, as can be seen in the last two verses of chapter 5. Then we come to chapter 6. So the Babylonian Empire is finished. Chapter 6, it's the time of the Medes and the Persians. And we consider Daniel who was now out of retirement and he was serving King Darius, the Mede, the Median. He was serving him as his first president, even though he was an old man. Nevertheless, Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. However, as can be seen here, he was thrown into a lion's den, but obviously he came out. Um, We're going to be looking at him in chapter 7 today. Um, he was delivered from the lion's den by God. God sent his angel and the angel shut the mouths of the lions in the den. As can be seen here in chapter 7 and verse 1, we're now going back in time to the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Belshazzar, who saw the writing on the wall and who was slain when Darius the Mede Uh, conquered the Babylonians. Nevertheless, we're going back to Belshazzar's first year, the first year of his reign, and to a time when Daniel had a dream. The contents of that dream mark the beginning of six chapters now of apocalyptic writing, where apocalypse comes from the same Greek word as revelation, as in the last book of the Bible. Revelation. The Greek word apocalypsis means unveiling. It means uncovering. Uncovering of things or events that were previously unknown. Apocalyptic writing tends to use a lot of picture writing. Anyone who has read the book of Revelation will know that there's a lot of picture writing in there. And that is designed to help us to understand things that would otherwise be beyond our 
capacity to understand. For example, the devil is a fallen angel. I think we all know that. Yet in the book of Revelation, he is described as the dragon, the old serpent. And what we're going to be looking at today are four kingdoms that are described in terms of being beasts, such as a lion with an eagle's wings. That's the first of the four beasts, a lion with eagle's wings. I I remember once someone trying to explain to me the, the, the need to have, or the necessity to have apocalyptic writing, picture language. Imagine going into a primitive tribe somewhere in this world a tribe that's completely cut off from civilization. I think they still do exist. A big part of me probably wants to be part of that tribe, away from it all. But anyway, imagine finding a tribe like that and trying to explain to them the details of a microwave oven, how it works. You know, instead of um, power lines, you've got reeds going through the trees with all this magical power going through the reeds that pass through the trees. Finally, these reeds, they they come to a little box in your mud hut and you push a button on the box and then things heat up and get cooked inside that box. You can't really do much more than that. There's no point talking about electricity and power stations and, and all the rest of it and stuff that I even I don't know about. You'd get nowhere. So you have to use a a picture language that the people will understand. And really God is using picture language for people like us to understand. Before we get into chapter 7 and indeed the whole of the second half of the book of Daniel, I may as well come clean and confess that I do not have a deep and infallible understanding of these chapters. What I could do is chicken out and not bother to do the chapters, but I want to. I, I, I Hopefully we will gain a lot from it as we go through these chapters, gain a lot from the experience. I would have to say that even the Bible commentators, they don't always give the same explanations, including the chapter that we're going to look at today. Don't think that they all speak with the same voice. And they can't all be right. So, there you have it. What we can do is look for God's guidance and look to and, and pray that we would get the gist or the general picture of events in chapter seven and in the other chapters that we're still going to be looking at. In chapter 7, in verse 1, we're told that we're only getting the sum of the matters. Look at verse 1 there. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. We're getting the sum of the matters of Daniel's dream. In other words, we're getting a summary. And that summary is laden with picture language, with apocalyptic language. So now I've made all my excuses, 
uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start with the chapter. First of all, we can consider the summary of Daniel's dream. Daniel saw that the great sea stirred up by the four winds of heaven and from the waters emerged four beasts. Back in chapter 2, the first king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he dreamt and he saw a statue with four parts to it. Do you remember that dream that he had? The head was made of gold and chapter 2 tells us that that head represented him. In other words, it represented the Babylonian Empire, the head of gold on the statue that he dreamt of. Now, according to verse 4, here in chapter 7, the first beast that came up from the sea was like a lion, let's have a look at it now, like a lion and had eagle's wings. It is widely believed by the commentators that once again the first beast uh, represents the Babylonian Empire in line with the head of gold on the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Also, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is actually referred to as a lion elsewhere in the Bible in Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 19. So you've actually got a reference to a king of Babylon as being a lion or like a lion so that's it's reasonable, shall we say, that that first beast represented Babylon. As for the second beast, it's written in verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second beast, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, And they said, thus unto it, arise, devour much flesh. Well, as has already been pointed out, the Medes and the Persians, they conquered the Babylonian Empire. After the writing on the wall, King Belshazzar of Babylon was slain and the Medes and the Persians took over. As for the ribs, the three ribs in the bear's mouth, I don't know if they perhaps belong to King Belshazzar, three of his ribs, when he was slain at his party, or perhaps they represented Lydia, Babylon and Egypt, which were all conquered by the Medes and the Persians. I don't know. As for the third king in Daniel's dream, according to verse 6, it was like a leopard, let's see, verse 6, another And thus, uh, this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Historically, what came after the, uh, the Medes and the Persians? The Greeks came next. The Greek Empire. Apparently, with the swiftness of a leopard, Alexander the Great conquered the most of the civilised world. The lightning character of Alexander's conquests is without precedent in the ancient world. And that is fully in keeping with the speed of a leopard, especially when it's got four wings on its back. Apparently, 
In just six years, Alexander subdued part of Europe, all of Asia, and even unto India. As for the significance of the number four, as in four heads in chapter, uh, in verse 11, well, not verse 11, is it verse 11 there? No, I've just read it, haven't I? Four heads, verse six. The, the significance of the four heads there, we're specifically told that Alexander's empire is divided to the four winds of heaven. That happened when Alexander died at the tender age of 32. As for the fourth beast, it is described as dreadful and terrible. Look at verse 7. The fourth beast. Uh, in the, I saw in the night, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. So, verses 7 and 8 tell us that the fourth beast had ten horns. Referring back to King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, that statue in chapter 2, the fourth kingdom was represented by two legs of iron with feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. That would have been a rather fragile composition. History tells us that the fourth kingdom was the Roman Empire. And I should imagine that the ten horns of the fourth beast Horns in the Bible represent powers. Time and time again you see that, that the horn represents power. The ten horns of the fourth beast, here in chapter 7, correspond with the feet and toes of iron and clay in chapter 2. And they represent ten lesser powers that proceed from the Roman Empire. We can see in verse 8, that there was a further horn that appeared and it uprooted three of those ten horns when it uh, when it appeared, when it arose. It had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. In other words, it spoke arrogantly and it spoke boastfully. Speaking great things doesn't mean it was speaking good things. It was speaking arrogantly. And that describes just about everyone to varying degrees but we'll get more clues as to who or what that horn is later when we come to the angel's explanation to Daniel. But in a sense, that speaking arrogantly, that that applies to anyone in this world, doesn't it? Speaking great things. um, We're all guilty of that. But this one, there's one particular person or institution that is spoken of here. Daniel then went on to say that as he watched, the angel of days took his seat on the throne of heaven 
and he sat in judgment in the midst of the heavenly court. The fourth and the most terrible beast was put to death and destroyed, whereas the lives of the others were prolonged, at least for a while. And then someone like the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days in the clouds of heaven, and he was given an everlasting kingdom. Let me just summarise this very quickly before we go any further. If I've got this right, and most of the commentators, the first beast, the Babylonians. That's the um, the lion with the eagle's wings. The second beast, the lopsided bear, that's the meat with the, the, the ribs in his mouth. Uh, that's the Medes and the Persians. Then you've got the leopard with the four wings, very speedy. The Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, uh, the Great, and this fourth, the worst beast of the lot, the Roman Empire, and and then ten lesser powers that proceed from it, and then finally a, a root that springs up, destroys three of those ten powers, and it speaks terrible things. Let's let's continue with this now. We can consider the Ancient of Days. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. I think you're going to guess who the Ancient of Days is. That's not too difficult, is it? I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him, before him. Thousand, thousand ministered unto him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were open. Go on, take a guess. Who do you think the Ancient of Days is? Anyone? Father God, we're told. Let's see. The Ancient of Days is God. Has to be, doesn't it? It's God. He is all-powerful, the creator of all things, the judge of all the earth. The descriptive words of verses 9 and 10 speak of God's eternality, his sovereignty, his purity, his holiness, his infinite wisdom, the brightness of his majesty and the incorruptness of his judgment. Every man, woman, boy and girl would do well at this stage, having just looked at verses 9 and 10, would do well to fall prostrate, fall on their bellies before the Ancient of Days in humble adoration and submission whilst echoing the words of King David of Israel who rightly said, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory, and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. And a big amen to that. Can you imagine speaking great things, boasting before the Ancient of Days? or directing your boast towards heaven. How foolish. 
going all the way back to the very first act of disobedience against the Ancient of Days in the Garden of Eden through to the end of the age, whenever that happens. It could be today, couldn't it? For all we know, when Jesus comes again. But anyway, right from the, right from the fall in the Garden of Eden to the end of the age, this world will forever be populated by people who are in rebellion against the Ancient of Days, waving their puny fists towards heaven. People who love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. It is a world that will continue to be governed by kings and rulers who take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. Just as the whole earth was filled with violence in Noah's time, so it is now and so it will continue to be until the time that the books will be opened. Indeed, not only will this violence continue, but from my understanding of things, it will increase. So much so that the days will be cut short for the sake of the elect. Things will get so bad. But the books will be opened and everyone who has ever lived will be judged according to their works. Works that either do or do not attend come with a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The works proceed from a genuine faith in Christ. Whoever's name is not written in the book of life will be cast into the everlasting fire along with the devil who is a murderer from the beginning and he is the father of lies. Let's go on to consider one like the son of man. That's another easy one, isn't it? Who do you think the son of man is? I didn't really have to consult the the commentaries for that. Let's see, someone says Jesus. Let's have a look at verse 13 and 14 again. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that that which shall not be destroyed. Do you know at this point, let me just say, now I obviously try my best, so I should, to give you explanations which are accurate. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to be standing here and feeding you a lot of rubbish. And, and I, I, I prepare my sermons prayerfully I do. A, I spend a lot of time on my sermon preparation, and I call the study my kitchen. I'm preparing food in the kitchen for you. I don't want to be feeding you poison. But you know, for all the un- uncertainty about the four beasts, and there is, and I've already admitted that, we know we can get the gist of it as, that I was talking about earlier. And the gist of it is, we've got the Ancient of Days, Almighty God. And we've got the Son of Man here and we know what's going to happen, don't we, at the end of days, at the end of time. Who's the the victory was won at the cross, yeah? And all of these 
kingdoms, whoever they are, whatever they are, will come to nothing. We know that before we go any further. Let's carry on with this now. Verse 13 and 14, the Son of Man. Someone described as being like the Son of Man came into the presence of the Ancient of Days and he was given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom. Again, it's obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be sure that it's none other than him. About 2,000 years ago, the Son of God was manifest in the flesh when he was miraculously conceived and born of a virgin. Therefore, he is both God and man. Indeed, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus referred to himself as a man when he said to his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He called himself the Son of Man. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? The disciples answered, some say you're this, some say that you're that, and all the rest of it. Jesus then went on to ask them who they thought he was, his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter correctly said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there we have it in just a few verses in Matthew chapter 16. The Son of Man is the Son of God. He is both man and God. The Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, where he sacrificially laid down his life for all who, from the beginning of the t- beginning of time, right through to the end of time, would trust in him as their saviour from sin. And that even includes Adam and Eve, if they did indeed truly repent of their sins and and trust in the Saviour who was to come into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will continue until the very last person who believes, truly believes in Jesus, and then he will come again in judgment. So Jesus, he laid down his life sacrificially for all the elect, all who were chosen by God, the Ancient of Days, from before the foundation of the world. He died for them on the cross. And on the third day, the Son of Man rose triumphant, having through his own death destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. God has highly exalted the Lord Jesus Christ. He has committed to him all judgment. And this is what we see in these verses where we read of one like the Son of Man coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days and being given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom. That is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ after completing his work of redemption. And that and giving to Jesus, the Son of Man, dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom includes having all judgment being committed to him by his Father, the Ancient of Days. We'll look at the last section, which begins at verse 15, and has Daniel troubled in his spirit concerning what he had seen in his dream. 
Consequently, in his dream, a heavenly being, an angel, explained the vision to him that the four beasts are four kingdoms that shall arise. And that is according to verse 17, very clearly there. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings. Kings stroke kingdoms, which shall arise out of the earth. The first of those kingdoms, as I've already said, the Babylonian Empire had already risen and was coming to an end. Remember, we've gone back in time here, and this was in the time of Belshazzar. He was the last of the kings in the Babylonian Empire, the last of the kings in that first beast. His days were numbered, but he wasn't finished yet. But anyway, and neither was the Babylonian Empire. So it had already risen, was coming to an end. Even so, in this verse, in verse 17, the Babylonian Empire is included as being a constituent part of a rising up out of the earth that shall take place. It's it's lumped with the other three kingdoms that haven't already risen as yet. Daniel was particularly keen to know more about the fourth and most terrible kingdom, the one with teeth of iron and with ten horns, where horn, as I've said earlier, it denotes power. He desired to know the truth about the horn that rose up and uprooted three of the um, other ten horns. The explanation that Daniel received is given in verses 23 through to 28. I'm going to read those verses again. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. It's a particularly nasty kingdom, this last one. The ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So again, could it be the the feet of clay, iron and clay in chapter 2, with the and ten powers that proceed from that fourth um, kingdom, the Roman Empire is the fourth kingdom, and ten powers that proceed from the Roman Empire, and then finally you've got that that last horn coming up. Verse twenty-five, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. I don't know about you, but I feel that's happening in this day and age. Wearing out the saints of the Most High. So that fourth kingdom, whatever it is, uh, that, 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 um, that horn that, that comes up like that, wearing out the saints of the Most High, I do feel that there's a touch of that going on now in this world. But of course, the saints of God have always been in threat. They've always been persecuted. And uh, that has been the, the, that's the message all the way through the New Testament. In this world you will have tribulation. But something is going on now in this world, something, the opposition to Christ and the church, 
whether it's that um, that final horn or the ten powers, or, or but it's certainly something that proceeds from that fourth beast. Uh, where are we with this? I'll read verse 25 again. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of times. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitation much troubled me and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. According to verse 25, the last horn spoken of as he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Christians, what is being spoken of with regards to the proud boasts, the blasphemies and the wearing out of the saints is very much in evidence to varying degrees. We're on this island to some degree, far more so elsewhere in the world, or or in different ways, shall we say. Maybe it's a little bit more sophisticated on this island. The, the, The opposition to Christ, the persecution of the saints, more sophisticated, not so bloody as it is in other parts of the world. But it's here. The identity of the last horn with the human eyes and the mouth that boasted arrogantly has been the subject of much debate. It seems to, if you want to draw a line and make a connection with somewhere in the New Testament, uh, 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 it seems to connect with Second Thessalonians, if you want to turn to that. I'm going to read it to you anyway, I've got it all printed out here. But if you want to follow in your own Bibles... It seems to connect with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 to 9. This this final horn that springs up, uprooting three of the other ten horns. We're looking at what the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians many, many years later. 600 years later perhaps. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that, and that man of sin be revealed, man of sin we got there being revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, or at least like wanting to be God, pretending that he's God. 
Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That he that letteth will let, that's believed to be God the Holy Spirit. He's allowing this to happen until the son of perdition is taken out of the way. Or, sorry, I'm getting that wrong. Let's move on with this. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Okay, so I was right. And then he'll be revealed at the end there. And the Lord shall consume him with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Years ago, I sat through a series of five long sermons on those verses that I've just read to you from 2 Thessalonians and the preacher presented a fairly convincing case for the son of perdition being the papacy. Perhaps you can see why that preacher and many others take the view of the papacy with the Pope being the son of perdition when you look at verse 4 where Paul said, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. When you read those verses and you consider that the Pope is given the title of Holy Father, that is serious, that really is serious, and it is deliberate. I say it's serious and deliberate because... In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, he addresses his father as Holy Father. That's not a coincidence. The Pope is given the title of Holy Father, the same title that Jesus uh, addresses his father, Holy Father. Having said that, There are many world leaders and systems, not just world leaders, but the systems that they control in government and elsewhere that set themselves up as God in that they oppose and they openly defy the living God with evil laws that violate God's holy laws. Isn't that setting yourself up as God? If you, and even here on this island, if you, if you enact a law, which is clearly a violation of God's laws. God's laws, I know I go on about this and I will do until the day I die. God's laws which tell us to love our neighbour as ourselves. So what do we do on this island? We enact a law that kills unborn babies. That is not just a violation of God's laws. That is setting yourself up in the place of God taking the place of God, but in the most unholy and ungodly way. It is an unholy, um, terrible situation. Terrible. And also, these powers, whoever they are, they suppress religion. 
Think about it. For, like, for example, the, the communism, it, it's, trying to, it's, it's trying to eradicate God completely. But the, you don't do that. When you get rid of God, you have your own God in, in God's place. Get rid of the Ancient of Days and what do you have there? You set yourself up as God. And this is precisely what is happening in communist countries where the leaders, they demand to be petitioned instead of people going to God. Just like it was uh, when Daniel wasn't allowed to, Daniel and everyone else were not allowed to petition any man or God other than King Darius the Median for a period of 30 days. People setting themselves up as God. It's happening in our day and age. When you remove God, you set yourself up as God. And as far as I'm concerned, they suppress religion in that they imagine that they have the final say over what churches can say, what they can do, when they can be open. Too much interference in what churches can do and say. It should not happen. And it ought to ring alarm bells in your heads. Very loud alarm bells. Whatever that fourth beast is, and in particular the horn that rises up as it uproots three others, uh, the three of the ten horns, we see that the persecution that accompanies it is global and it will continue to the end of time. Note, there is no mention of the saints being raptured away from the persecution. In fact, look at verse 21. I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. As I said earlier, things things get bad for the saints. And Jesus said the same thing. And yet people talk about the saints being raptured away from all this badness. I don't see it. And Jesus certainly didn't teach it. And we're not getting that less, we're not getting that message from Daniel chapter 7 either of the saints being raptured out of all the horrible stuff that's going on. And as I've already said, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, I think, that the days will be cut short for the sake of the elect because things will be so bad at the end. Persecution of the saints is as much the Christian's portion as faith is and it will continue right up until the Son of Man comes again in judgment and when that happens, far from there being one big almighty battle, I love what Paul said to the Thessalonians. Let me just read that bit to you again. Um, When I read to you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said, when the Lord comes... The Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The fighting's over when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It's finished. He will simply blow on them and that will be the end of all that opposition to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man and all who are trusting in him as their saviour from sin. It will be finished. The, The The suffering will be over. The persecution will be a thing of the past. 
Finally, Daniel's dream reveals a miserable picture of this present world, a world in which evil pervades everywhere and appears to prevail everywhere. And that should come as no great surprise when you consider that the devil is the prince of this world. Something that Christians need to wake up to. They really do. Not just read it as some academic exercise. The devil is the prince of this world. That is what the Bible says. And we're getting a horrible picture in in chapter 7 here of the things that must surely happen right up until the Son of Man comes in judgment. But the good news is that God reigns supremely and he is in full control. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who tasted death for all the saints, has been given an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. All who are trusting in him are heirs of God. They are joint heirs with Christ. As such, it is written in verse 27, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So the present suffering of those who are trusting in Christ, no matter how terrible that persecution might be, is nothing compared to the greatness of what they already have as children of the Most High God. doesn't matter how much you suffer now, even if you get a gun pointed at your head, that doesn't even begin to compare with the greatness of belonging to Jesus. And what you shall inherit, inherit as a child of God and a joint heir with Christ. As the Apostle Paul said, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The all things working together for good doesn't necessarily mean in this world, but it most certainly does mean it works out for your eternal good. And nothing's going to change that if you belong to Jesus. Finally, don't leave here vainly imagining that you will be just fine when the Son of Man comes in judgment because, after all, you're much nicer than those four horrible beasts and that nasty horn that spoke blasphemies. Forget all of those fanciful thoughts and listen to what the late author and pastor R.C. Sproul said about himself. Now, he was a man of God, R.C. Sproul. He didn't die long ago. He was one of the faithful uh, men of God, one of not so many in this day and age. This is what he said about himself. Hitler was extremely depraved, but he could have been worse than he was. I am a sinner, yet I could sin more often and more severely than I actually do. I am not utterly depraved, but I am totally depraved. For total depravity means that I and everyone else are depraved or corrupt in the totality of our being. There is no part of us that is un- that is left untouched by sin. That 
that agrees with what Robert Murray McShane said, in my heart, every known seed of sin can be found. Anyway, Sproul went on to say, our mind, our wills, and our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words, we, we do sinful deeds. Now I'm encountering that at the moment, not just, in, well certainly in my own life, but with other people in the church. Not this church necessarily, but um, things that ought not to be happening, ought not to be said, ought not to be done. It happens in the church as well as outside the church. Amongst the Lord's people, just as it does with those who have no interest in Christ. Our very bodies suffer from the ravages of sin. If you can see what the, uh, if you can see that what Sproul said of himself applies equally to you, then you must confess your own wickedness before God and believe that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, bear your sins in his body at the cross, having obeyed God's laws on your behalf, and may you know the peace of God that passes all understanding in a world where there really is no peace. Amen.